Hey friends, welcome to Happy Tears! I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick. And this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys talk about the books, TV shows, movies, and general art and pop culture that we love, so much so that it often brings us to tears. Today on the show, what if Superman was a sociopath, Aquaman a sexual predator, and a multi-billion dollar corporation was bankrolling and protecting them. Wouldn't you want them stopped? Well, that's what the boys are for. And then, throw it back to a simpler, more peaceful time, like World War II, which coincides with the golden age of comic books, the birth of the superhero, and the adventures of Cavalier and Clay. This is Happy Tears. Before we get into our discussions of the day. There have been several instances of happy tears for me this week, Brandon, in the things I've been consuming outside of, of these subjects. I love that. I've got I got lots to talk about. All right. It's about time. It's about time. <laughs> There's I've had dry eyes for too long. The first of which, um, I know you haven't watched this show, but uh, Glow Season oh, 3. Little did you know. No, I what? started. You started Glow? I did. Season 1? Yep. How you feeling? It's it's fun, dude. I yeah. like it a lot. I like the. I mean, yeah. I think the concept's great. Something that I've never seen before. It's fun. So I think it's a really great show. Um, season three is obviously just dropped recently. It's I think it's best season, and specifically season three, episode six, is particularly uh, captivating. Episode seven also gave me some some light happy tears, but but really, season three, episode six of Glow, they get into some pretty sensitive uh, subjects of racial dynamics. One of the girls is Jewish. She talks mm-hmm. about that. One of the girls is, I think she's Chinese. Mm-hmm. They have a misunderstanding, and and it's one of the more well-executed discussions of race I've seen on TV, uh, specifically that wasn't kind of a, uh, in a black-white dynamic. Yeah. And it was, it was really great and very touching and re- really well done. Cool. And so I'm excited to get there. Yeah, get there, baby. I've been listening a little bit to the new Bon Iver album. Still trying to figure out my thoughts on it, but so there's some moments watching some of the visuals that were connected to that that I got emotional with. But I think I've been listening to Otis Redding a lot this week. There's some awesome live videos of him, and I was blown away. I didn't realize I've listened to Otis Redding forever. And did not realize how young he died. I know nothing about Otis Redding. So, I know sitting on the dock of the bay. Yeah, but if you listen to that song, you wouldn't think that. So that song came out after he died. Did it really? Yeah. I had no idea. It was a huge song, but I think either months or within the year after he died, it came out. Okay. And I believe he was 26 when he died. Damn. But it's so crazy to me how he was such a good, he wrote these earworm songs, but they have such maturity to a lot of them. And his voice has that same sort of thing. And just watching him too, like looking like some of his live videos, I would have thought he was at least 10 years older than these songs just from his voice alone. Totally. He wrote a a lot of songs in a short amount of time. Yeah, it kind of blew me away. And he died in a plane crash, which is also crazy because I feel like... The amount of plane crashes there are, it's hard to imagine that so many like musicians and different like celebrities have died in one before. It that makes a little true. more it makes a little more sense that they're small like most of these are smaller planes, you know, private planes and I don't know, or like a helico- helicopter crash like Steve Ray Vaughan. But it was just it was nuts. He was I think twenty six and a lot of those 
songs came out when he was 25, 26. He recorded, um, I think he recorded sitting on the dock of the bay like three, twice, but the second time was like three days before he died. Wow. Yeah, so I was listening to him kind of in a whole new, in a whole new light and just listening to some of his, or watching some of his live performances. But he was crazy talented and wrote these amazing songs, especially like, you know the song uh, Dreams, or I've Got Dreams to Remember? Yeah. Because uh, you, you're, I know you're that Johnny Boy. John Mayer. <laughs> May, I said Mayer. I, I know that because of John Mayer, yeah. Yeah, so I, is it Gravity that goes into that? It is. That he, I yeah, it's such a good. Crazy that we're talking about Happy Tears. Yeah. I was coming to see you at the coffee shop. Yep. And for whatever, on a whim, put on that song and had Happy Tears. It was earlier this week. And it's the, yeah, I got Dreams to Remember intro into Gravity. And uh, God, I love that song. It's great, yeah. So that song sounds like someone who is like 55 years old looking back on something. Right. And so I it, think it of just like has that Ray sort of, Charles, Georgia on my mind. I don't yeah. know how old he was when he made that song, but I think he was Probably, a little older. But yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I picture someone that had lived a, a life before right. singing that. And it's just crazy to me. So that's kind of just what I've been doing this week. Yeah. Time well spent. Yes. So I finally caught up with, with a film that I really wanted to see in theaters. Did not get around to it. A little documentary that came out a few months ago called Apollo 11. You watched it? Watched it. It is currently on Hulu. Is it really? Yeah. It is newly found footage from the Apollo 11 moon landing mm-hmm. uh, mission. And it's gorgeous. Most of it's 70 millimeter mm-hmm. footage that is just like, it. Lo- it looks like a movie, a lot of it. It's just so beautifully shot i don't know who did this if it's people that worked at nasa or, mm-hmm. or whatever and they just drop you in it's not a documentary like uh like many that that have interviews and somebody like any sort of narration somebody telling the story it's yeah. literally you were just dropped in and they're just showing footage and you're hearing mission control stuff like it, it tells the story all the way from like a couple weeks before the mission all the way through really when they land back on earth the magnitude of what they accomplished in 1969 is is just incredible yeah and uh the footage is breathtaking are we gonna discuss this as one of our i i'd be super into it if we wanted to i love space shit yeah that's what i'm saying we should (laughs) it's definitely worth further discussion yeah i've been wanting to see it for since it came out i've had multiple movie pals tell me i need to go see it and i'm and i am Sad that it was missed in the theater. Like, I, oh. I missed the theater opportunity. I hope they show it again at some point. But. I hope so, too. I mean, even my girlfriend, who likes movies, but is, you know, isn't like a cinephile yeah. like you and I are, and, and uh, even she was like, man, I wish we would have seen this on a big screen. Yeah. It's, it's just so majestic, some of the, especially the, the footage from space that shows Earth off in the distance. Yeah. Literally on the moon, things like that. Oh, man, it's so cool. It's incredible. I got some happy tears, mostly towards the end. There were a couple different times, but and and it's, I feel so basic, but when he says the words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, just boom, boom, just <laughs> waterworks. And of course, Tess looks over me, over at me like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I should knew we, it was we coming. should have a, a waterworks audio cue. We, we, okay. For- just <laughs> right when we hit those, talk about those happy tears moments. Like, just, uh, it could either be solely water based, or it can be like a whale and. 
it makes me think of Parks and Rec. Crazy Ira in the douche. You know that that <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. radio show they've got on that. Yeah. But even just like waterfall sound effects can yep. be funny. Okay, uh, we'll 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 do some research into yeah. waterworks. They put a plaque on on the moon that, to paraphrase, said something along the lines of, "This is placed here by humans from Earth who came in peace." For all mankind, something, yeah. something along those lines. And just the idea of us being, traveling out into the unknown in the name of peace to just out of uh, a sense of curiosity for what's out there mm-hmm. uh, really, really got to me. And especially in times like today where there is so much turmoil and foreign policy and kind of the way our uh, domestic governing is, is going, it, it seems more antagonistic than than anything it was it was nice to be reminded that there was a time when we were concerned with venturing out in the name of peace and and i think that it uh represented an ideal for us to to live up to it made me feel patriotic in a way that i very rarely feel my whole life i've I've been kind of skeptical of the kind of blind nationalism of america as the greatest always no matter Mm -hmm. what but this really makes you feel feel good about maybe our our most magnificent accomplishment ever you know i don't know so yeah uh, some major happy tears just last night we watched it and it was Dang. it was really great cool man i'll get on it do it uh anything else in your atmosphere or, uh <laughs> shall we move on in my atmosphere really was that that was a john mayer and space oh pun in this and right, we i were... didn't even make the connection my subconscious is working overtime to bring space and john mayer my two great loves together <laughs> <laughs> I need to step up my game. (laughs) Hands down, Eugene Levy has not only the most expressive eyebrows, but also just the best, period. No competition. Jack Black, great choice for expressive eyebrows. Can't remember which movie it is. Maybe School of Rock, but I just remember him like doing the wave with his eyebrows. I thought it was crazy. Okay, Peter Gallagher and then uh, Winona Ryder. Just Google like Winona Ryder acceptance speech eyebrows and just watch those things go nuts. John Krasinski in The Office. Uh, Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec. Um, What's his name again? It's the same name as that golfer. Um, Adam Scott. Nick Offerman, obviously. Eugene Levy, um, is it Levy? It could be Levy, I don't know. Leonard Nimoy, James Franco. Did I already say Tommy Lee Jones? Okay, bye. So those were the submissions for Hollywood's most expressive eyebrows as asked for in episode three of Happy Tears when we talked about Michael Keaton's crazy eyebrows and Jackie Brown. Thank you to everybody who submitted. Fantastic submissions. Lots of love for Eugene Levy out there, man. Oh yeah, I mean, they're not wrong. I mean, I just forgot that guy's name, but I would never forget his eyebrows. Some other submissions from our Instagram, Carl Urban, mm-hmm. David Harbour. We get a real hard cosign from Michael Keaton, quoting, Michael Keaton has always had the greatest brows in Hollywood. I'm just so glad I'm not the only person who noticed. It was necessary for Beetlejuice. That was from Alicia. Wow. Vince Vaughn got a shout out on the gram. Let me, let me ask you this. Exquisite. Do you have a favorite from that list? It's still Michael Keaton because I feel like he does so much with his, like they're part of his character and also kind of squints and has this like inquisitive, I'm still going with that. Well, I, ever the populist, am going to co-sign Eugene Levy. <laughs> Levy. Yeah, I'm, clearly they, just by the looks of them, they are in the top three. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> 
Clearly, they're contenders. <laughs> I love a good stiff competition for the uh, best eyebrows in Hollywood. People love superheroes. They swoop out of the sky and save the day. People love that cozy feeling. That superheroes give them. Soups lose hundreds of people each year. It's collateral damage. It's fucking diabolical. They're all like that? All of them. Yeah. Pardon my French. Fuck those fuckers. I've got the boys together. Jonas. So here's the, the Wikipedia synopsis of The Boys. The Boys is an American superhero web television series based on the comic book of the same name by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson. Developed by Eric Kripke for Amazon, it follows the titular team of vigilantes as they fight back against superpowered people who abuse their abilities. Sounds about right. You started watching this before I did. Correct. Did you have any reference to the source material? Like, did you have any relationship with this material at all beforehand? I don't have a connection with the source material, and I had heard from a couple people kind of a general synopsis, but that is it. How about you? Yeah, I had never heard of the comic book. Yeah. And had some friends check it out and highly recommended it to me. Uh, when they told me the description, all cards on the table, I got super bummed because I've been writing a screenplay yeah. with almost the exact same storyline. And granted, now that I have watched this and done some research, I know that this comic book series is, uh, I think it started in 2006, so 13 years ago. Yeah. But, especially when I th was thinking that this was an original idea, I got real upset because I had this idea about two or three years ago. It's not the exact same, but it's close enough to where my thing has to go in the trash now. <laughs> you can't, like, uh, re remold? Retool it? Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. My idea was for a feature film, and so maybe there's a world where, where I could do mine. But either way, at first, I kind of avoided this series because I was angry at it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, makes sense. If anything, I'm learning. The lesson here is if you've got an idea, make your thing before someone else does. Again, oh, great advice. Granted, this was made 13 years ago originally, so I can't really, I can't be that mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole time I watched the first episode of this, all I'm doing is is essentially writing down, well, that was from my thing. Like I had, I had heroes going on Jimmy Fallon in my script and it happened in the pilot of this show. It was just like, I, you know, for the first like two or three episodes, all I'm thinking about is the thing that I've been working on and comparing it to this thing that exists. Right. And it was frustrating. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> But once I got past that, overall, I think I liked the show. I got some issues with it. Same. For the most part, it was a pretty fun ride. I, I, hope, I hope there's some things they changed. I agree. Two. Yeah, I, I think that there's some room to grow for sure. And I think that they, they will. Showed some great signs of what this could possibly be. And I, there's some, some good characters in there. I should mention now that we will probably get into spoiler territory. Yeah. So... This is the warning. Spoilers are ahead. So if you haven't watched The Boys, skip ahead to the to our Kevlar and Clay discussion or come back once you've watched it. It's eight episodes. I really, really like the pilot. Mm -hmm. I think the pilot is probably the strongest episode, and it doesn't quite keep the same level of humor throughout the whole thing. Uh, I think the humor is maybe one of the strongest points of it. 
And uh, I think, especially during the middle of the story, it kind of loses its way a little bit. I think so, too. I think the last couple episodes bring it back. It had a, a little bit of dip towards the middle, but... Yeah. So one of the things I really liked from the top of this was the archetypes of the characters that we get. Yeah. For Homelander, you get this Superman stand-in that's... America's part of his brand. He's this golden boy, but behind closed doors, he's kind of a sociopath. Right. You get this Aquaman type character. Uh, his name's The Deep. And he, we don't know this in the first episode, but he turns out to be kind of the joke of the group, right? Nobody yeah. takes him seriously. Very much like people treat Aquaman in real life pre Jason Momoa. <laughs> yeah. No one thinks Jason's a loser. Right. Yeah. That's he's, he's really turned the Aquaman <laughs> brand around. And then you get uh, Starlight, who's this kind of young, idealistic bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, all-American, naive naive girl that wants to be a superhero for all the right reasons, and she believes in it, and she really gets a cold awakening in the first episode when she gets selected to be part of this. uh, It's called The Seven. It's essentially the Justice League or the Avengers. It's this supergroup that is backed by this multi-billion dollar corporation called... Vought. Vought, correct. So all those characters I'm in on, there's Queen Maeve, who's the Wonder Woman of the group, I think, right? Yep, yeah. Uh, from what I've read in the comic book, the boys are kind of already a group That's, from the start of yes, it. Yes, okay. And so, that, so this is- So this is like the, the, yeah, this is the prequel to where you kind of get more of the development, even though there's still characters, you don't really understand their backstory. Right. Well, talking about the boys, those characters, there's Carl Urban, who plays Billy Butcher, and then Huey, who is played by Jack Quaid, Quaid, son of Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. Wow. I did not know that until I looked him up halfway through the show, but he looks exactly like his dad. (laughs) Yeah. And he kind of looks like a young Michael Shannon mixed with Bill Hader, yeah. I me. see that. I think he's good. I like I like that archetype of the innocent bystander who his life gets ripped apart, essentially. Yeah, he's pulled by... in. Yeah, I think it is cool that they set it up to where you understand how he joined, even though you don't really... It seems these other characters uh, have a backstory together. I guess the female also, she the joins. The female but... being... Uh... Oh, the, fe- the female. Oh, oh, Kimiko, who who they find out her name is is that. Yeah, which, do they ever call her the female in the show? I don't know if they call her anything, but I know that that's... Right, and, yeah. and I learned that by doing research also, but I yeah. uh, but we'll talk more about kind of my issues, but yeah. since we're here, part of my issues with the show was the relationships between a lot of characters felt really weak. Yeah. Although I liked the archetype of the characters as they introduced them in the pilot in the first couple episodes. Yeah. I thought that the way they had them interact a lot of the time just it didn't connect with me, I think, the way the filmmakers intended. And so, like, the female who is, in the context of the show, since they don't call her that, she's just this... She's the lady that is encaged at the beginning. Encaged? That's not a word. It might be. Maybe. Encaged. Let's look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Word of the day. All right, so she's the lady that's encaged. They find her in a cage. And let her out, and she kind of wreaks havoc and murders a bunch of people. And then they track her down, and then I guess she's like becomes part of the group. To me, it was very unclear what was going on with all of her storyline, because they were chasing her down. It, it seems like t- because of a connection with Compound V, which is something we haven't even touched on, that's a huge part of this whole storyline. And by the end, there's really no resolution with the whole team of 
where they're at and kind of what's going on with them. Although I like the group of the boys for the most part, I think most of their interactions are kind of fun and often funny. I kind of find them less interesting than the, the seven. seven. I agree. For me, is because I have no idea why half of them are there. Yeah. Frenchie is a fine character and I think he plays off the others okay, but they just like, kind of show up. Yeah, I don't think that they're super solid together. How do you feel about Billy? I think Carl Urban is is having a blast. Yeah, doing this character, I think he brings a lot of much needed humor. The actor does a really good job, mm-hmm. and I think most of the dialogue's pretty fun. I, I'm sorry, did you just call God a c-word? Yeah, he's got a hard on for mass murder and giving kids cancer, and this big old answer to the existential clusterfuck that is humanity. It's to nail his own bleeding son to a plane. That is a cunt move. Come on, even you got to agree hey, with me. Hey, 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 please. We should love a fucking nuke at him. Sir. Get it over and done with. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're sorry, sir. We apologize. My man. All right, good talk. Think about it. I'm here all day, all right? My issue is I don't get a clear sense of what he wants. I know that from the start, he doesn't like the seven. Yeah, you, that's you get, clear. You get that out, out the gate. Right. But you don't... It takes a long time for them to get to kind of what happened with his wife and all that, which I, I and I, I buy all that as a motivator. Right. But exactly, does he want to kill them? Does he want to expose them as frauds? Does he want to bring the whole organization down around, you know, like, it's yeah, just- Yeah, he's holding a lot of that in, I think, too. But I I agree. I didn't really feel a connection to his character. And I feel that his, um, I mean, there's definitely parts when you don't like his character, too. So right. you're rooting for- you know, Vought to be taken down or whatever. But sure. Yeah, there are some confusing, some some confusing moments. I think specifically within uh, the boys that make less sense than the seven did to me. Like the the motivations there are a little more clear. Definitely. The interactions between them and uh, dynamics between the different characters there, I think, are just more interesting to me, and they motivationally make more sense. And for the most part, I think the acting is pretty good all around. I'm, it's funny because I'm still trying to figure out whether I like Starlight's casting because most of the other ones, they're believable in their uh, archetype or whatever. Right. And for her, I get that sometimes, but for some reason, the way she, I don't know if it's an acting thing or if it's a writing thing that I just found her character to be a little unbelievable at moments. I would argue that it's more of a writing thing. Okay. Examples I can pull out from the pilot. She gets gets selected to join the Seven, yeah. this big monumentous thing, and the very first, I think, night that she's part of the team, she gets sexually assaulted mm-hmm. by another team member. Right. And it immediately kind of corrupts what she thought she was there to do, right? Right. And this is my big issue with the pilot, which I think recurs throughout of these kind of contrived happenstances. She, yeah. She ends up on a park bench <laughs> and happens to be sitting next to our other lead right yeah that's tough and they have this interaction where she's on the phone with her mom oh that was that was that my hardest (laughs) the hardest part for me to swallow in the first episode too sorry to interrupt you no sure mom i gotta tell you what happened oh i forgot i was playing mahjong with patty and trish and patty is going on and on about how her daughter got into med school and i'm thinking so what my daughter got into the seven anyway so so what did you want to tell me Everything's great. Just how we dreamed. Just like, okay. Yeah. And she's not able to 
to tell her. Right, like and it's, it's just that's that, a very played out part. Yeah, you know, it's like you, you got to give me something new because that's been done a bazillion times. Exactly. That that was one of my biggest critiques of the first episode for sure. After she hangs up on that phone call, who's sitting right there but Huey, and they immediately have this magical connection where she divulges that she's having a tough time at work, and he says a line. She's like, I thought I was strong, and I thought I was this, but it turns out I don't know who I am. And he goes, Just because you fall on your ass doesn't mean you have to stay there. So you fall on your ass. You know, that's not who you are. It's like, dude, you don't know her. Yeah. <laughs> this, I don't buy this at all. Yeah, there's like three eye rolls in a row in those in that sequence. Right, and it's that relationship is kind of central to the whole plot of the whole series. Yeah. And that's where a lot of it falls apart for me if that's the spine of it or you know like a central plot yeah their relationship i don't buy i don't think at any point and so to bring it all back to whether starlight is an acting thing or a writing thing i think a lot of it is is the writing and i think there's a lot of really good writing in this a lot of clever funny stuff yeah yeah throwing them together on a park bench my eyes roll into the back of my head yeah and then their whole relate like they really only hang out like four or five times in the eight episodes, but by the end of it, they're supposed to like kind of be in love, but not like, you know, they, they, I think they just aren't, the two characters aren't given enough to work with to really sell this relationship that mm -hmm. everything by, by the end kind of hinges on Yeah, as, as far as a motivator. Cause she, she feels scorned later when she finds out he was using her to, to get information and blah, blah, blah. Right, and for her to get over that, you have to believe that he's valuable enough to right. her. And I just, I don't think that that relationship was ever really developed in any meaningful way. They go bowling and, uh, you know, hang out a couple of times. But I, yeah, I just don't conference. buy it. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that is is a weakness of the writing rather than the acting. I, I think overall she does a good job with what she's given. She definitely looks the part. Yeah, she does look the part for sure. I think coming into the show and how people describe it, uh, there's this hype behind it to where proponents of the show make this out to be like some genius TV show. And I feel like the show thinks it's that as well. Right. And moments when I disconnected or was eye rolling or whatever was when I felt like the show was was doing that or like trying too hard. Taking itself to be, a little seriously. Well, I don't think too seriously, but taking, making it seem like it's more profound more, than it is. Yeah. Smarter or more profound yeah. than it is in moments like you were talking about where I felt that from the writers or whatever. Like right. They, I would agree with you because I had that thought also. And I think this show works best when it's bringing it forth the humor. I think that's my favorite moments are always the funny parts. I think it's trying to walk that balance of having real commentary about corporatization and the corruption. What humans do with power. Sort of exactly. Thing. Yeah. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. It also tries to kind of poke fun at superheroes in a lot of ways. Yeah. A lot, not that I need this to be Deadpool. I think mm -hmm. Deadpool does it better. Mm -hmm. I guess all I'm saying is the times where it is trying to be a little more profound than maybe it is, I agree, fall a little flat. And I think it does better when it's just... Yeah. laughing at itself or laughing at the genre a little yeah bit. and even throwing some surprising things in when i could tell it's trying to prove a point it is a weaker show for it did you notice i know we talked about like a childish gambino's accent and and guava island do you feel like 
Carl Urban's accent is ever distracting. I bought it the whole time, I'll be honest. Yeah. I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. You're a bunch of pathetic soup-worshipping cunts. I bet you'd thank a soup if they shat on your mum's best china. Did it ever occur to you that they split your spine or broke your dick just for a laugh? Not so much from you? No, I just, I kept on hearing the, like, Australian part of it. Yeah. And then I just kept on having a hard time separating him from Hugh Jackman. And, <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I think he does a fine job. I, I have a, like I said, we had some kind of difficulties getting into his character and what he's about and then just why you should care about him. That's fair. I have a, an accent issue to mm-hmm. bring up. Okay. Simon Pegg, trying to be an American... <laughs> Sounds like a Scottish-British guy trying to sound like an American. Yeah. I didn't buy it for one second. Yeah, I... And I love Simon Pegg, but I don't I don't even know why he was in this, really. Yeah, I, I love him, too. It, I think it's always funny when shows do that. They introduce someone who has, the, like, so much in their own lane, and people know them from these things, and then introduce them uh, with, like, a different accent or something that might just, like conflict with how you know the person it takes away from your experience with that right with that thing so i think in some points it works completely and i'm totally about actors trying a different accent and pulling it off but when you're so familiar with someone's work and all of that i don't know i I felt the same way i think he did a fine job otherwise i mean he doesn't play a huge role anyway yeah honestly i don't love the inclusion of Huey's dad as a character it seems like he's only in the whole show because in that one scene in the pilot you got to make the point that you can't do this why not dad i have you don't have the fight you never have neither do i we're two milk toast white men you know like that's the whole point to have the dad in the show at all yeah and i feel like there was a different way you could have made the point that Huey's just a guy Right. Like when um, Billy's trying to convince him to go plant a bug at the Vought building tower, Huey is is aghast at the 007 shit that he's being convinced (laughs) to try to do. And a beautiful piece of writing, the way that he conveys who he is as a character, he goes, I'm not, I'm not, do you know who my favorite musician is? James Taylor. Number two, Simon and Garfunkel. Number three, Billy Joel. Any of those guys, they don't infiltrate. (laughs) And I thought it was a really fun, funny, and creative way to explain who a character is. Yeah. This guy listens to James Taylor. He's not James Bond. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So I thought that was really funny. How did you feel about, well, we could talk about the deep as a character, but also how they, you know, address the sexual assault and his character after that. I didn't necessarily bump on the way they handled the sexual assault, I don't feel like... Clearly, it's awful, but I think it was true to the way people abuse power. Yeah. He gets exiled, essentially, so Mm -hmm. he sort of gets what's coming to him in some ways, but... I find it hard. I feel like the giving him these kind of funny idiot moments throughout the show and then having it happen to him as well is a weird kind of try to, like... Getting too close with sympathizing with the character for I me. See. Right, because uh, I didn't even think about the fact that essentially he gets <laughs> assaulted later in, right. a, in a slightly different way. But Yeah, but yeah, for sure in a different way. And he's has, you know, he has more power in that situation as right. well. It's just a weird, 
I thought it was just a weird thing to put back in there. I, I couldn't tell what they were trying to do. Yeah. I couldn't tell it was like, oh, this guy got what was coming to him because I don't, I didn't feel bad. I wasn't like happy at, you know, I don't think you're supposed to feel that way. So I'm like, why did they do this? And if it was to gain him some sympathy, I thought that was a, a weird move as well. For sure. And you don't want to get in a dangerous uh, situation of suggesting that the only way f- to sympathize with someone that's been assaulted is to be assaulted yourself. Yes. You don't want to be sending that message. So that's something I hadn't thought about at all. But now that you bring it up is dangerous. <laughs> because you can make him an asshole in the beginning and then develop the character where, oh, you realize this is a pathetic asshole and everyone knows it. But when you set him up in like a way that gives him this position of power that he really abuses and you're disgusted by him and then to kind of make him have these silly moments throughout, to me, kind of felt like they they were starting to pull. I mean, because I can imagine people liking his character because of, of the funny moments and like the whole dolphin thing and realizing that this guy's just a kind of a a goofball who doesn't deserve to be in this, but he, he looks the part sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah, no, I get it. And and the dolphin thing was one of my favorite parts of the whole yeah, show. Those moments are the comedy exactly stuff. what you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Like the surprising comedy, the uh, subversive stuff. I yeah, guess. it's just over, over the top and weird. And the second that he slams on the brakes and the dolphin <laughs> flies through the windshield. Subverting your expectations. For <laughs> yeah, sure. for sure. What did you think about Elizabeth Shue's character? She was the uh, the kind of executive that was the point person for all of the heroes, especially Homelander. Yeah, I thought she was great. That character is important, and it's clear you see her insecurities. Those moments when you know she was in turmoil and stuff, I think those played out pretty well. And her relationship, honestly, with with Homelander is one of the most interesting. I think in the whole. Yeah, because you don't. <laughs> You kind of don't know what's going on. He's clearly like in love with her, but is she a romantic interest? Is she a surrogate mother in a way? It's kind of a weird blending yeah. of both. And you get more of it. As you understand his story, you kind of understand their relationship a little more. When it's um, revealed how he grew up, you understand how the kind of role that she might play in his life. But I think Homelander's an interesting character in that it's Superman without... Jonathan and Martha Kent, right? So Superman's obviously an alien that comes to Earth, and that's a different origin story. But the the idea of this all-powerful being that is basically invulnerable, if he's grown in a lab and has no parents to teach him right from wrong, what you get is a sociopath, and that's what Homelander is. And uh, the actor, whose name is Anthony Starr, Plays him really well, I think. He plays, he does the smile for the camera and the... You guys, you are the real heroes. He plays that up really well. And then I think he does the kind of menacing sociopath really well also. <laughs> no, maybe I'm stupid. Am I stupid, Eve? What? No. <laughs> Ow, you're not stupid. <laughs> you're smart. Very smart. Right? Yeah. Okay, so what possible reason, what uh, razor-sharp fish instinct made you run to Stillwell and tell her what you thought you saw down there? I mean, were you surprised by the first time you it's revealed how... Not really. Yeah. It did play out somewhat predictably, at least for me, in terms mm-hmm. of... Obviously, nobody is going to be squeaky clean, especially in this world, in this, in this circle, universe. Yeah. yeah, and then how about the 
the reveal of the compound V, these superheroes not being born this way, do you feel? Obviously, the ethics of it are horrible. Yeah. That they're taking babies and making them lab rats, essentially. Mm -hmm. And especially in the case of, of Homelander, he didn't have a childhood. He was a he was a an experiment, right? right? That's all awful. But for whatever reason, the gravity of it never landed with me. Like, because I think it was supposed to be this giant reveal that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back of we got to get these guys. Yeah. For whatever reason, for me, it it just didn't really connect. I mean, it just we we knew they were terrible, right? Yeah. So I, I you know, I don't I don't know if if I misread it or or if did you think there was an interesting interaction with Starlight and her mom because of that or yeah, but they kind of tipped their hand early that her mom was not didn't care have her daughter's best interests at heart from the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. If they had maybe played it up to where this is all about you, honey. Not about me at all. Maybe that would have landed harder, but mm-hmm. we we already knew. Yeah. We didn't know the specifics, but we knew that she wasn't. Yeah, that makes sense. That's another, my biggest issue is the relationships between all these characters, and that's a great example. The mom and daughter thing was never really built up to be torn down, right? It was, they showed their cars at the beginning that mom was, had an agenda. Mm-hmm. They didn't say what it was, but you, you kind of get the idea that she just wants her... She wants her daughter to be a superhero because she wants to say she has a daughter that's a superhero. Yeah. You know, she she's doing it for selfish reasons. Just a little more selfish than you realized at the beginning. Yeah, because the methods at which she goes to achieve this are, are fucked up, you right, know, right, are, right. are pretty horrible. That relationship was weak for me. Mm-hmm. The main characters of Huey and Annie, who is Starlight, mm-hmm. uh, was weak to me. How do you feel about A-Train? I don't know if he was written that well. I think he was a pretty good, played the part pretty well, but he wasn't getting, given a lot of substantive dialogue or any real storyline other than being a drug addict, trying to get his fix. I th- didn't really buy his love with Popclaw. Mm-hmm. It seemed their relationship the whole time was him hiding her and treating her terribly. And then at the end, he's supposed to be so distraught because Huey, quote unquote, killed her or made a train, you know, like it, it just like the basis for that relationship. I didn't buy it because it felt one sided the whole time. And so at the end, when they tried to make it this big emotional thing for a train, I just didn't buy it. Yeah. I, I do like the character archetype, just going back to those of the superhero that's losing his edge mm-hmm. and needs steroids to yeah. stay relevant and keep his power. Yeah. And I, I like the archetype of Popclaw as well mm-hmm. as this. B list, yeah, who never, who never made it, or you know, it's um, and now there's different kind of there's levels to these superheroes, and some of there's them there's a hierarchy, are, yeah, yeah. Visually, I think the show's pretty interesting. I think that there's at least like with their the visual effects and stuff, I think it's uh, fun to watch, yeah, in that sense. But for season two, I would like to see a little more interaction between different members of. The seven. Cool. Yeah, I agree. Developing further the boys' backstories or, or why why they have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why Frenchie and Mother's Milk are even around. Yeah, I don't care for their, them very much. Most of its character relationships, I hope they find a way to deepen Starlight and Huey and make it more real. And I'm hoping we get some more superhero antics, and I think we will just for budgetary reasons, you know, yeah. season one is always going to be, they're going to have less money for season yeah. one. So hopefully season two, they get to spend some more money on special effects and stuff. Yeah. It gets me excited for Watchmen as well, though. I'm highly anticipating that. 
that release and how they how they approach it. Nothing in this I got super connected or emotional. Yeah, no happy with, tears for you. Nah, um, I don't think it was really trying to, and that's fine. Looking forward to season two and hoping that they can tie up some of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, critics seem to love it, and there's a lot of fans of it. So you and I may like it slightly less than the general viewership. Yeah. The Boys is available on Amazon Prime streaming services. It's eight episodes that are all about 40 minutes to an hour each, so eight hours or less of content to devour. The next item of discussion is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Ooh, I like that read. That was really good. And we're going to keep my compliment in. That's not getting cut. You better. <laughs> you better. Uh, Joe Cavalier, a young Jewish artist who has been trained in the art of Houdini-esque escape, has just smuggled himself out of Nazi-invaded Prague and landed in New York City. His Brooklyn cousin, Sammy Clay, is looking for a partner to create heroes, stories, and art for the latest novelty to hit America, the comic book. Drawing on their own fears and dreams, Cavalier and Clay create The Escapist, The Monitor, and Luna Moth. Inspired by the beautiful Rosa Sachs, who will become linked by powerful ties to both men. With exhilarating style and grace, Michael Shabon tells an unforgettable story about American romance and possibility. Ah, what a read. What was that synopsis from? Goodreads. Goodreads. Okay, before we get any further on Cavalier and Clay, we're actually recording this on a later date than we recorded the rest of the episode because we felt like we wanted to add some more context to the overall story of this novel and kind of our our broad thoughts of it because we kind of really jump into the details very quickly because we like the details we like this book love the deets love them deets baby (laughs) i'm adding baby to a lot of things (laughs) lately it's a new development i've been doing it on the podcast a lot yeah i I notice when i edit how do you feel about that i say like three babies an episode Really? That seems And then insane. cut them all out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me how you feel about this novel. Man, I, I love this novel. If I look back at some of my favorite novels, it will, it's up there. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's, I don't know how, I don't know where it ranks for me. I know I really like it. Yeah. I also haven't read nearly as much as you, so I, I it's, you know. Well, I think some of it is I don't read a ton of stuff like this in terms of like the action or energy in it. The actual content of the material is something that I haven't explored or gravitated towards in the past. So along with it being really well written and having these incredible characters, it explores this time and this material that I've not really been able to connect with before or had experience with before. So I think a part of that is why I liked it so much. I thought the characters were really well written and it held my attention for the entire I mean, it's a long book, right? For sure. And so it does jump in time at several points throughout the novel. For something this big, you know, there's always the critique of like, could he have edited out a couple hundred pages? And I mean, maybe, but I I pretty much enjoyed the the whole ride. I could have gone on um, a longer journey. Yeah. I was really fascinated by the fact that this was mostly set in America before America entered the war in World War II. And I don't think I've ever watched or read or experienced anything that was from that time specifically where they talk about the war and they talk about the Nazis, but they're not involved in any conflict yet. So there's a lot of discussion and conversations around whether or not America is going to get involved. Right. 
it's just a different outlook at that time than I've ever experienced. Right, and but it's not the focal point of the, the story at all. No, it's just a backdrop. Let's give a broader uh, recap of, of some of the plot points, maybe. Right. So kind of right from the start, you kind of get an origin story of both Joe Cavalier and Sam Clayman mm-hmm. at the beginning. They kind of get each get their own chapter. You get a chapter where they meet each other for the first time in New York after Joe has escaped the Nazi presence in Prague, where he's from. Right. And then so... He meets his cousin Sam for the first time in New York City. Yeah. He's got an incredible story of how he escaped, right? And then they kind of just overnight decide, well, Sam kind of decides for them, we're going to make comic books. Yeah. This is before there is a comic book industry, really. Superman had just been created and was becoming popular at this time, right? Yeah. From there, the story kind of takes off. That's where I got the most invested, right? When they when the golden age starts, right? Yeah. Um, and so from there, they enter this wild west of comic books. Joe ends up meeting Rosa Sachs. They have a romance. Yeah, and these companies trying to capitalize on this, you know, this medium that's taking off and becoming very popular. You know, the company that they're starting to work for was something else beforehand. You know, they barge in and say, hey, we have something that could maybe work. And they saw money signs. And I thought that dynamic was really interesting as well. Yeah. And you and you don't get, I mean, they seem kind of like caricatures of that time period, right? But they also, I mean, there's some of them that you kind of feel for. There's an, enough humanity in them and the relationship between them and Sammy and Joe to where you just get a a good sense of the nuances of the industry or trying to come in and start something when someone else is trying to take as much of the pot as possible. For sure. And so you've got that along with just the interpersonal relationships between Sammy and Joe and Rosa, uh, as well as how they're kind of growing as people, right? Right. Joe is 100% focused and fixed on getting his family out of Prague, right? So they can also escape the Nazis. And so that's a huge motivator for him. And everybody else has kind of their own motivators as True books. to life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true to life, true to good literature. So. Right. And it all leads to this kind of big event that changes all three of their lives, Joe, Sam, and Rosa. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of the uh, specifics on stuff that uh, you want to talk about. Cool. So the story's kind of set up in an interesting way where you're kind of plopped into this relationship between Joe and Sam, and then it kind of pulls back and gives you this backstory of of Joe and kind of this um, whole experience, and it's set up in these uh, books within the book. I think those were separated in, in a way that made sense. I was, I was kind of confused for a minute at first how it, it jumps back into this Joe's backstory, but I think um, it was an effective way to kind of start off with the the main relationship of the story and then kind of pull back into why this is happening. Yeah, I mean, it had, what, like four or five, maybe six kind of sections that are honestly felt kind of Tarantino-esque, right? The way the way Pulp Fiction is is told in, in chapters that kind of jump around in time. It's funny that when you talk about who was the first artist and the, how they describe Huey. Oh, James Taylor. James Taylor, yeah. So they talk about it of Joe being like obsessed with Houdini and all these aspects of him and magic and escape artistry. And then it talks about how Sammy is more, it it lists three people as well. And it's Nikola Tesla, Louis Pester, and Jack London. 
or like like his three. So you right. you have an idea of who these characters are. This is on the very first page of the book by these pe- like these young kids looking up to these heroes. I thought it was an, a nice way. And I think throughout the book, Shaban does an awesome job of building these characters, the descriptions of them, and setting the scene of New York during this time. Right off the bat, introducing characters like Cornbloom, who have like this funny, like almost like, you know a movie, Hugo? I never saw it, but I'm familiar. Yeah, just like characters from from that time period or who have that sort of influence on Scratch that. I did see it. (laughs) Sorry. There's a watchmaker, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. See, I saw it. (laughs) Yeah. Just like these really quirky old characters who are skilled at this kind of wild craft, like escape art. Right. And then mentoring this young kind of wide-eyed kid sure um i think is a fun little dynamic to start off with there's some real serious moments throughout this we're talking a family deeply affected by world war ii and on the other side of the equation the the hopeful future for these these kids who have are flowing with creativity and one of my favorite parts of this is the spirit of their creation their creation as in the escapist specifically or just uh kind of all yeah just all of them just the spirit of creating and them getting into that the flow of it the energy of that and what that means in the the american spirit or whatever but that was one of my favorite parts of the of the book how do you feel i know you said it it took you a little bit to get in and then you were you were locked in yeah, um, I've mentioned to you before that I really love beginnings of things, uh, specifically with movies. I, I always love that that part where we're setting the table and meeting these characters for the first time, usually in trilogies, like my favorite Lord of the Rings is Fellowship, my you know favorite uh, Star Wars is probably A New Hope, like I just like getting to know characters before... Yeah a wrench gets thrown in, in their lives. Right. I think it might be the opposite with novels. Yeah. Because uh, maybe it's because it takes so much longer to read, uh, you know, the first several chapters of a book right. than the, to watch a movie or the, than to watch the first 20 minutes of a movie. Right. I was just waiting for something to happen. And you're, you know, really, you've got to set the table, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I get that you we have to get to know these characters. At the time when I'm reading it, I'm I'm just like, one of the comic book's happening, right? Because you know that that's what the thing's <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, they set that up in the description of the book, so that's what you're, you're waiting for. Right. But once they really get into it, especially towards the end, obviously, having their backstory is what makes the book good. Exactly, right? yeah. It's, you... It shows growth. It shows where they're coming from. This is something, like you just said, that I have trouble with starting a book as well as it's like the beginning part is going to be mostly set up and the way I'm, I mainly get into it to it is through how descriptive it is of the small moments and all these things are great you're waiting for the main action to start but it is those moments that you look back on and realize that those parts of the character are are what make the uh the whole thrust of the the book work and payoff is so much more rich because of it i love how they introduced the magic stuff early. I'm, I'm, I was into that stuff as a kid, so... Oh, were you? Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit, as much as uh, going to, like, some magic shop. I was never great. I just was, like, more enthralled by Yeah. Enthralled by it. But another thing I think that really pulls you into this setting is him introducing these historical figures throughout the book. You get a real sense of time and place, but they're, this is different from Tarantino and that I feel like his were almost used as... I don't know if pawns is the right... 
I feel like he threw characters into Once Upon a Time for like a fan servicey thing. Right. I think these people in here really service the the book and the characters and their interactions with them. And they never seem just kind of thrown in. They just seem like this is a, a natural way. Right. Way Specifically of, like Salvador Dali yeah. or Orson Welles is maybe the big one. Right, right. Yeah. And maybe kids going to see that at that time. That, that whole thing I bought completely, right? Totally. I, it's an entryway into this thing and he's kind of rewriting this or giving you a picture with all of these other elements that kind of strengthen the, the uh, setting. I like those parts of it. And you add the golden age of comic books is just fun to learn about in general for me. I'm it not, was awesome. I'm, the, I have a pretty big blind spot when it comes to comic books in general. So cool to hear about the history, to be immersed in it with the skillful writer, as well as some of the Jewish mysticism stuff throughout here, like where we talked about the, the golem. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating and something new for me. So that just the learning aspect of that is, is fun throughout this, apart from how the story's going. For sure. The section of the book that I believe is titled The Golden Age, yeah, which is you know really where the escapist comes from, right? That's, that's when Sammy and Joe create the escapist and, and dive into this world of comic books. And it also coincides with Joe's relationship with Rosa. And it's really the happiest section of, of the book. And it's one of the most exciting for sure. When you first read that chapter that is the escapist's origin, mm-hmm. I was enthralled. Yeah. I, I loved it. And so kind of what you were saying earlier with the magic nature of creation and creativity, mm-hmm. it sings through that chapter. Right? Yeah. It's just so much fun through that whole section of the book. Well, yeah, so two things. I think Shaban masterfully crafts those sections. So it's like, it's essentially a comic book within a book. And he's doing both at the same time, which is, I think, pretty amazing. Uh, I bet that was so hard. (laughs) Yeah. And having those, you know, change as, as characters develop and mature. And I think that was just written really well. And then the other thing, it's clear that he has a love of comic books. I mean, these oh, things sure. are all in on the spirit of what they meant to uh, America and that it's clear that he was a huge fan mm-hmm. and treats this material really carefully. Like there's wondrous things that are happening to these characters. And so you get this whole thing is almost a comic book in it itself, like this whole hero story or yeah. I guess the wonder of it. The surrounding cast of characters is is pretty great. I did love how Rose's character was introduced. I love the creation of Luna Moth. I thought that was a really cool, really cool section there. And then, I mean, we could talk about themes and stuff. So we have, we have escape as a theme clearly. Yeah. With first Joe escaping, escaping Prague on the uh, onset of World War II and him having this obligation to bring his family over and right, this, um, doing these things for his family. And it kind of haunts him. And, yeah, and he's, a yeah, he has guilt from that. I mean, you, you have him escaping, I mean, clearly with the escapist as well. <laughs> you have Sammy trying to escape from reality, dealing with his sexuality. Oh, um, yeah, that's, a, that's well put. Throughout this book and really all, all the way to the end, I thought Shavon handled that that well too, especially within that, him not knowing what this meant to him or how to express it. It's clearly, I mean, this is the late thirties, early forties and then to right. the fifties, there's a completely different world than we have now. 
the idea of it is honestly so terrifying to me in terms you know like yeah how how do you live that life right in that time it just it's it's heartbreaking in a lot of ways yeah and and it was handled really beautifully in his in relationship with um bacon, bacon. what's yeah. his first name i don't remember tracy bacon tracy bacon yeah great name <laughs> yeah great fictional name <laughs> yeah especially for his character and that was one of my favorite bits of the book something was just so real and exciting about Sam Clay and Tracy Bacon being together and Tracy helping Sam explore himself and his sexuality. And navigate and, all this. And, yeah. yeah, it just, uh, and it leads to an even... A tragic. Uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I like the, the role that Ebling or Ebling played. He's the, was this the leader of the Aryan American Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was his? This, uh, is it Carl, Carl Ebling? It played out, I think, as him as this like comic villain him like representing the enemy and endangering the the public in these situations and then it kind of the story kind of drifting back into more tough reality and then i don't know it's the moments like that that remind me of like the comic book part of it it's reminiscent of you know the joker showing up in the the dark night at the party or something like that of this person coming to kind of comically create chaos or something right we can talk about some of the tragic moments i think that really strengthen this um one being that Rosa is pregnant and Joe doesn't find out until later. He escapes his life in, in New York and goes to Antarctica. And that whole section changes quite a bit. The tone of the book changes, the way um, it's written changes. You're, you're less like in the story and it's a more descriptive kind of from above view of what's going on. For sure. And it's very like more harsh nature type of read than um which i thought was a really cool way to kind of switch gears yeah i picture almost if if this were adapted to a film the cinematography being much more like security camera footage or something you know like you're disconnected from him right and he really wrote kind of this no man's land Mm -hmm. in a really um compelling way yeah and so each one of these things kind of ends in this tragedy that you see some sort of resolution to in the next typically in the next section which i think is pretty cool or at least like the start of the resolution so that one being joe doesn't get to he never knows that rosa's pregnant and it's kind of heartbreaking for her she thinks that he's gonna ask her to marry him and then he's off and then at the end of this one or close to the end you have him shooting this person it's so sad Right. It's so sad because he realizes, and uh, I mean, this is the only other person as part of, he's he's just a, a German soldier who, uh, or the only two people left here. And what could have been in a, in a different reality, a, a budding relationship right. ends up being this kind of accidental conflict and then ends up being the most tragic part of Joe's life, he says, which is because he killed someone. Yeah. Who was the last person there to be anything for him? Man, that whole section just was. Whew. It's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, even just from the the end of the previous section, mm-hmm. which you kind of you kind of see it coming a mile away in terms of they really talk up the the my brother's coming. I'm so excited. Really, for a long time in the book. Right. And then right when everything is perfect in his life, of course, it all falls apart. And it's it's deeply heartbreaking mm-hmm. for everybody involved, right? Because Joe loses his brother, 
He loses just the prospect of having real family ever again. Right. And all of his purpose. Right. Yeah. That's what he's been. Right. There for. Like he's been create, illustrating, creating these characters with the sole purpose of letting his family share this dream of freedom. Right. It's equally, I think, tragic for Rosa and Sammy, whose lives fall apart at the same time and really right. for the same reason. Once Joe goes and Tracy Bacon goes, all they have left is each other, and then they start this new life that's, that is not at all fulfilling in the way that their lives could have been. And then what you're talking about is going to Antarctica, and then he ends up murdering the only other person for, you know, like a thousand miles or whatever, yeah. right? Uh, and, and it is further heartbreaking and, and really, really tragic. Yeah, you know, you don't get a ton of Sam and Rosa together but you can just imagine what based because he skillfully writes their characters so you know they're walking off the page that you you know what their life is together you know that it's they're helping each other out to make it to survive yeah yeah and i think that relationship is a beautiful thing just because of what it is that neither of them they're there for each other because they both lost something right because think of what their lives would be if they hadn't had somebody to turn to exactly. when everything went to shit right. for sure it's beautiful and, and, and tragic still, in the same and time they're, and they're still very important and integral to tommy's life mm, mm-hmm. and although you skip so many years there you can imagine what those what those years would be like and then it kind of comes back with this fantastical stunt kind of stunt that that is similar to what you get at the beginning i mean the stunt of him escaping Prague seems ridiculous too, but I just, yeah, I, I really love that that the spirit didn't leave Joe, although you can tell there's something that's changed in him. Mm-hmm. It's fun to see, you know, 15 years later or whatever. He's still the escapist. That, that, yeah, that, you know, he's still digging away and creating. Right. The revelation that he's been working on, on this, this new work of art uh, around the golem mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It brings the story together in this great way. And that's something they teach you when you're learning screenwriting is to plant the seeds in act one for, for something that's going to happen in act three. Right. right. And so, so this was masterfully done that you never expect the golem to or at least I didn't expect the golem to ever really play a role once he made it to New York. Right. And it turns out to be his masterpiece, you mm-hmm. know? Man, I thought the, the relationship between Joe and Tommy and the way that played out was just great. The whole magic bit coming back into the story. Just Tommy's shenanigans in general is just reminiscent of something Joe would, would do early on. When When the story shifts and kind of falls away from certain characters and focuses more on others and then comes back. I just think all of those shifts seem pretty natural. Yeah. I never lost interest because the stakes were always there. Like those stakes are huge there. If someone not knowing that's, you know, Tommy doesn't know that Joe's his father, but you have this, you have this huge backstory to, to make all of those moments mean the world. Yeah. One thing I thought that was super compelling was the way that he didn't just tie up loose ends at the end, between these main characters, like there are some major things that they had to work through. There's some major. Joe comes back to, you know, break into someone's family dynamic, right? And he has some feelings about it that, like he's cl- he's clearly conflicted. He wants to be a part of Tommy's life, but he recognizes he hasn't been, and he's like, so 
Shabon doesn't shy away from writing those parts in and those conflicts of what Rosa and Sammy have built, what Tommy has known his whole life, what this changes in Rosa's life. It was a really beautiful way to pull things in, still have some things to work through there. And then I, I like that these characters all had some decisions to make at the end. And so you get Sammy going through this humiliating case and working through this thing and finally find him some freedom and and then making this decision on his own to go to L.A. You're not left with this big uh, happy ever after ending with him and you don't know how Rosa and Joe are going to make it work now. Right, you set them up for a new adventure. Like there could be like a superhero yeah. story. You know, there's there's always the next chat, the, always the next story to tell, yeah. right? And that's he he does that really well in capturing the spirit of comics. Yeah, I thought another interesting part of it was the the golem and what it represented, and you know, Jewish culture, but also this just creating something and having it go out into the the world, and how that kind of parallels with just you know their art in general and what anyone's creation is once they. They make it and it goes out into the world. It's how people are receive it in all different ways. And it kind of develops this agency of its own uh, that you don't have control over. Yeah, you saw that a lot with The Escapist, right? He he kind of documents really well how it starts as this idea between two guys and you watch it kind of not become theirs anymore, both in a kind of a legal sense, but also just the idea of the escapist, right? Right. Becomes, you know, once it's out there, it kind of belongs to the fans in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, were you satisfied with the with the ending here? Or? I liked the ending. I, I didn't necessarily get a ton of happy tears, although I really was emotionally connected to the book the whole way through, especially once kind of the golden age section started. My read on the ending when Sammy has... I guess scratched out the the names on on that piece of paper and he's written Cavalier and Clay and you realize or at least what I my read was that the adventures of Cavalier and Clay isn't about Sammy and Joe it's about Joe and Rosa cuz she's now her name is now Clay. Mm-hmm. I didn't th- you know you don't I don't think anybody really thinks about the story as this is the story of Joe and Rosa as you read it but mm-hmm. when you get to the end and the way it's written that's that's what dawned on me. It's like, oh, this was the story of these two lovebirds. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, I mean, just talking about another clever thing is like the relating the whole, I mean, the whole turn of events as like a sleight of hand was, I thought, just pretty brilliant. The trick that they played and then to the public and then revealed. He's just a super skilled writer and that's pretty apparent. The, I think one of the moments when when Joe reads the letters that, from Rosa that he was unable to read before kind of revealing what had happened, that's, that was when it, when it hit me. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think what you just mentioned with the letters from Rosa is probably the most emotionally gripping moment for me just because it represents a whole life for Joe that was lost, mm-hmm. that he didn't know was even right. a possibility. Yeah. Did you ever think while you were reading this, this would be a, a cool adaptation and maybe a TV series or some sort of... Because they've tried several times have they? to do this, yeah. And, and I know um, I'd have to look up uh, Shaban's credits, but I know he he's a showrunner right now on a on yeah. a show that's. Uh, do you know what it is? I remember reading that, but I don't remember what show it was. One interesting fun fact here is that he said if they ever do, you know, 
adapt this, he thinks that it would work best if you cut out the the Prague stuff and the Antarctica stuff. And I think that was just because it was going to be a, a film in the grand scheme of things. Those didn't have enough time to play out to make sense in the film. They'd take up too much time. Yeah. That's why I think of a TV series would be pretty suitable for this. But I don't know that I would want to sit with it more than an hour and a half. Really? I think I'd want it to be a movie. I, I just don't know if, if the story, if I'd want to sit through eight episodes or 10 episodes of, of this story, I think it'd be more effective as a, as a movie. feature. Yeah. Hmm. Just looking at, he's got a story by credit for Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire. Um, he's got a screenplay credit for John Carter from Disney. He is uh, involved in some Star Trek That's what it was. stuff for CBS, yep. I think, right now. Mm-hmm. He's obviously done a lot of screenwriting, so I imagine if if it ever gets off the ground, he'll be heavily involved. Yeah, and he's he has written some other books that I I would love to cover. I've read Moonglow and really liked that as well. I'd like to return to it actually, and oh yeah, kind of dive deeper into it. The Yiddish Policeman's Union is one that um, I'll probably go to next. So, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is on bookshelves and has been for like 19 years. <laughs> so um, if you haven't read it, uh, highly recommended by both of us. You can get it probably, I mean, any bookstore really. Yeah, this is a Pulitzer Prize winner, so shouldn't be hard to find. What's the longest book you've ever read? Oh, it's one of the Harry Potters for sure. Whatever the longest. Harry Potter It's probably It's probably the, the last one, Deathly Hallows, right? I've not read all of them. Terrible. Scum. But you've you're so much more well read than I am that it's as I like how I can turn my nose up at you about Harry Potter. Yeah, you disgusting peasant. What's the longest book you've ever read? Well, what is this guy? Six fifty six is mine. I'd have to think, but this is probably it is very long. I don't know. I'm gonna go look back and see what the longest book I've ever read is. You should let us know. Yep, will do. So obviously the two things we talked about today, The Boys is a much more cynical look at superheroes and then The Amazing Adventure of Cavalier and Clay, a little more lighthearted, not without its heavy moments, of course. But um, yeah, we had a little uh, superhero day of it. We did. Superman was practically in both of these. Mentioned often in, in Cavalier and Clay and obviously a huge influence on The Boys. Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita, that's me, and Brandon Henry, that's the other guy. You can find more information at happytearspod.com, including past episodes, our schedule of future episodes, and resources pertaining to this episode. I'll post some stuff, including the Otis Redding link that Brandon talked about at the top, as well as some other things that we talked about throughout the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Happy Tears Podcast. Nick is at Melitogram, and Brandon is at Mr. Brandon Henry. Original theme music by Homage, youtube.com slash Homage Beats. Be sure to tune in next time when we are discussing Where'd You Go, Bernadette, both the novel and the film adaptation directed by Richard Linklater. Man, we're doing a lot of Linklater. I love it. And that's all for Happy Tears. I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick. Farewell!